Welcome to the Leadership Looks Like podcast. I'm your host, Cree Edholm. Sponsored by Leadership Excursion Company and recorded from The Coop, located in Summerlin, Las Vegas. Join us as we explore personal stories of leaders who are making incredible impacts in their businesses, lives, and communities. Get ready to be inspired, see things from a new perspective, and learn new tools to help overcome challenges. This is what leadership looks like. Bill Emmel is a United States Army veteran and served in different leadership capacities over the course of his 23-year career. After leaving the military and discovering that an estimated 22 veterans commit suicide each day, he chose to take action by creating 22 Warriors Foundation. Learn how Bill incorporates service dogs into his program, his take on leadership, PTSD, and the personal tragedy that Bill has endured and overcome. Enjoy. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you here. And you're here with Ranger. Yep. It's my service dog. Yep, your service dog, Ranger, who that we are going to to talk about in a little more detail. And, uh, you know, you're involved with uh, the 22 Warriors Foundation here in Las Vegas, which we're going to dive into um, a little later. And, you know, when I first met you, you told me your story. And you're a veteran. Yes. And uh, you're a Purple Heart, Heart recipient. No. Nope. Correct? You're no, not. No. I got, got the bronze stars. Uh, the Purple Heart is actually one of the the awards. I'm I'm happy that I that I didn't receive. Okay. You know, yeah. For some reason, that's something that I remembered. No, we, it, we work with the Purple Heart Association. Uh, ah, that's our, what it is within our office. Um, you know, it's luckily I, most of the, the situations I ran into, um, I, I I was just near misses. You know, IEDs. Yeah. You know, getting knocked out and stuff like that. You know, I, I never. I never got shot. I mean, it came close, but I was just one of the, the lucky ones. It's one of the things on one of my ODAs when I was on them. It's what we're one of the things we're kind of known about is we we're kind of lucky. You know, we went a whole you know seven eight month de- deployment. Not one of us was injured. Well, one person did get some shrapnel, which he turned down his purple heart because it was just some minor shrapnel, um, which is kind of normal within the special ops community. Um, but we were known kind of having a bubble and we were there for the whole duration. Nothing happened. And as soon as they dropped us off, the team that relieved us, they got ambushed five minutes later down the road and a couple of them got, you know, were shot. So that's, it was one of those things that, um, a lot of near misses, very, very close near misses, you know, with IEDs and sniper ambushes. Um, but luckily I wasn't the one that in those exchanges that, that was injured or even the my platoon or you know once i went back in the infantry all the injuries were on the other side luckily right right so, so tell me more about um specifically what you did in the military and you were in the army correct yes when i first joined i joined in uh 1990 uh right after that i was a, a military policeman uh went to basic training started in october 1990 uh from there, graduated and went straight to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We didn't even go to a, a, a duty station. They just put us on a plane. After they processed us, sent us over there, and they actually divided us when we were there. And ironically, I was attached to a Tennessee National Guard unit, which was kind of a, a shock for me because I just came from basic and AIT, and the military police 
basically in IT is very strict because they're considering, hey, if you're going to be a, in law enforcement, you have to be, you know, disciplined. And you get there and, and they're a little bit more laid back. You know, the, when I met the commander, he's like, hey, my name's Steve. What's your name? You know, and I went to attention and saluted him and said, you know, Private Emil. And he's like, where are you from? I'm like, California. He's like, well, I'll just call you Cali. You know, so it's kind of, you know, different. And then from there, I went, in, you know, to a, my first duty station was in, um, uh, weapons storage site. And, uh, at, around that point, I started noticing I really didn't kind of fit in as a military policeman. Most of my friends that I had were in combat arms, like military police is combat service support. They still get into a lot of, you know, combat, but it's, there's, you got the combat service support, service support, and then you have combat arms units. And, I don't know, after a few duty stations, I just decided when I was in Germany that I wanted to go into special forces. And so I uh, put in the paperwork. I did the, the selection and went into special forces. Started around 1999 and uh, did that for up, up until 2008. Got in some, you know, trouble with, trouble with uh, drinking and, and stuff like that and, and was, you know, asked to leave <laughs> basically okay you know i got in some trouble but it, they uh my career was strong enough to where even though i got in trouble and, and reduced in rank they sent me to be a leadership instructor you know at the officer's leadership course in in uh, fort rucker alabama and uh i built by that time I, I back went into the infantry and belonged to ranger branch and uh i was there for a couple years as a, a instructor writer for the leadership course I helped rewrite the army's leadership um course for the, the long, young lieutenants and everything and then uh by that time i kind of got tired of of dealing with the lieutenants and stuff like that because i'd been in already close to 20 years um going over 20 years so then i um i volunteered to which no one really does i volunteered to go to first cab to deploy uh to iraq I wanted to. Yeah, and, and let's touch on the timeline really quick. So you you um, you joined the military in the in the early nineties, mm-hmm. and then now at this point you're you're a trainer, and this is right around nine eleven, correct? Uh, no, uh, late nineties, early two thousands. No, in uh, nineteen ninety nine, I was actually a student. I, w- I was in the special forces uh, qualification course. Okay. Um, I uh, went through selection in nineteen ninety nine, um, but because I was I was in Germany, you had it's a uh, three-year tour. You had to spend at least two-thirds of the tour. So I had to go. I went to selection, and then I actually went back to Germany for another year waiting to, to go to training. And then I left, and I started training um, at the end of 1999 in the Special Forces Qualification okay. Course. Okay, okay. And that lasted uh, about two years. Um, part, part of it was uh, um, I got injured once during there, and then my brother had passed away. And they it recycled me, but also um, the uh, communication course is a little bit longer. And then I uh, I got one of the harder languages. And then towards the end, I also got promoted. So I, I went to a leadership school. So it was about two two years of, of training before I got to my first, uh, when I went to first special forces group. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And then um, you were in the, the uh, military for about 20 years. Which is under twenty three, yeah. Yeah. So what year did did you um did you separate from the military? I retired in uh 
2013. Okay. Wow. All right. So you you were there for um, all of the the wars in the 90s and the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was that like? Um, you know, the, depending on where I was at, you know, um, when I was an instructor, it wasn't, you know, it was just me training. I did a lot of, um, when I left Special Forces and I spent about 28 months at Fort Rucker, um, my, you know, I'd, our, our days were long cause we had, you know, PT in the morning and then, you know, we'd instruct all day and stuff like that. Um, but I also, I ran a, a ranger school selection program. When I first got there, the brigade commander asked me if I would uh, put one together because a lot of people don't realize that ranger school is actually a leadership school. Mm-hmm. It's not a like a, a small unit tactics school or a combat. It's it's a leadership school. Okay. That's why they put you into sleep deprivation. They don't feed you because they want to see when you're under extreme pressure how you're going to react. That's pretty much the closest you can get to combat without actually getting and getting shot at. And uh, and in the aviation part of the in the aviation world, you have the commission officers and the warrant officers. Um, the commission officers, you know, they go through their flight training and they fly, but they also become, you know, the, the platoon leaders, the company commanders. They they take on leadership. The warrant officers, they pretty much fly for the rest of their career. Mm-hmm. So so they don't get to go to to ranger school because they're not going to, you know, most instances be a, a leader. Um, they're going to be the the ones that are going to be flying the missions and stuff like that. Not saying the officers don't, but primarily it's the warrant officers. So uh, I developed a you know the selection program, and it was it was it was kind of different than doing it in most units because the officers you know they have to learn to to be in a, an aviation pilot. You have to learn to memorize a lot of stuff, and so academically they were beyond what we would normally train to go to, you know, to ranger school. And, uh, so it was more just physical, you know, physical. And then the requirements for them just to get in the program were just as strict to get into any, uh, to get into ranger school. And depending on how long their, their school was, they had, they had to, to be in the program. They had to come. So it was very strenuous for them, not just academically, because they had to keep above a 90% in their academics, but they also had to be able to maintain a 300 PT score, which is maxing out their PCT score. Okay. You know, so it, I, I did that for about two, two years because, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize special forces, one of their primary missions is basically teaching. We just teach either, you know, foreign uh, governments or, you know, the other side. It might be the rebels. We might be training them. So I've pretty much been instructing since I joined Special Forces, and then it was just a natural progression to go from, uh, you know, from group to go into, when I went back in the, in the infantry, they sent me straight to an, you know, an instructor slot. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. You, you hear, um, you hear those stories in the news sometimes, or, you know, just if you study history that, that our uh, military does train other, other militaries, other, other people, um, both domestic and foreign. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm curious to know you're you're an instructor, you're a ranger instructor, and the types of leadership traits that you look at in a person to be successful in this program um, are those the same types of leadership traits that that um, you hold true for civilians? Well, yeah. Well, I, I ran a. Well, I'll make a difference. Uh, 
I was about to go to be an RI, and there's a difference. Okay. And I want to make a difference. Okay, it, yeah, please it, do. It was in the commu- community. Like, I'm Ranger qualified, uh-huh. but I wasn't in Ranger Regiment. Okay. So when I, whenever people say, well, you know, oh, I, you have a Ranger tab, were you a Ranger? And I said, no, I was Ranger qualified. Okay. I, I, was in, I was in Special Forces. I was in group. Okay. Um, and then I was a Ranger qualified infantryman. Okay. And the, the reason there's a difference is because uh, – once you go into a ranger like 75th ranger regiment there you know like my nephew he was a, a ranger cuz he was actually in ranger regiment um i was a my next duty station after i left um fort hood was supposed to go be an ri but then i ended up just retiring i decided that i you know was at that point to have enough but i ran the ranger selection program because you know it, which is more the one uh, each unit, if they have a good ranger selection program feeding into ranger school, then there's a, it's not as high as an attrition because it's a very high attrition rate uh, going into ranger school. It's very hard physically, yeah. mentally. Um, but as far as your question, like when we were running the program, uh, just like in a civilian world, you're looking for someone that, that can actually lead under stress. Um, I strongly believe there's a difference between a manager and a leader. Um, a manager is someone that Hey, they can manage the schedule really well. Everyone, you know, has everything, you know, A to Z that's in the right place and everything. Um, a leader is the one that can say, okay, this is what we need to, to get done. And they provide that, that purpose and motivation, the direction that they need. And they, you know, they lead by example. Mm-hmm. And you, you look for those type of people, um, within the range community and even, you know, the regular community. There's always going to be that person that, when people are there, they shine real well and they look like they're doing the right thing. But as soon as someone leaves, then they're back to not doing anything, calm spot like rangers or whatever. Um, those are types of people that you try to hope you don't have. Um, but I'm one of those people that's trying to believe that you got uh, born leaders. You have some people that can be trained into being leaders. And then you just have people that are very good at, at what they do and, very good at, at their job and, and they shouldn't be forced into that other slot. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the army used to have a, a specialist rank. Well, they still have now, which is the E4 specialist because you have, uh, the NCO version is a corporal and everyone, you know, has heard the word corporal and that's usually the first NCO, um, rank that, and the services you'll have is E4. And then they used to have specialists four to nine. And basically what they were, they were specialists in the, in that area. Basically, they're really good at their job. And then you had, you know, the corporal, the sergeant, staff sergeant, sergeant first class, master sergeant, and those were the leaders. And at one point, they got rid of that. And as time went on in the, in the, the military, you started noticing that there's people that were very good at managing, but they're very – bad leaders Mm -hmm. and i've had some terrible leaders you know um just like they started having this zero tolerance thing and once you've been in trouble you know they started pushing you out and and most of my best leaders had been in trouble before because it's usually you find out a lot about someone when they've been in trouble how do they react how do they react immediately after you know even if they're you know, they're in trouble or they're in, under investigation. How do they react while they're waiting? Are, are they going to just go off the deep end? Are they going to just, hey, I didn't do it or, hey, I made a mistake. I'm going to fix it. Um, 
that to me, you know, shows a leader because if a leader has been, been through a hard time before and made it through the other side, it actually shows those that are underneath them as subordinates and his peers and everything. Hey, you can, you can have a bad, a bad, you know, year, you can have a bad day, you can have a bad minute, but it can't, you know, it doesn't have to destroy the rest of your life. Yeah. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know, are you going to take charge and, and it's, it's kind of about character. Yeah. You really see who they are in those circumstances. Definitely. I mean, some of the, you know, like when, when I went through my stuff, you know, I, I, I drank, I'm basically, I was a blackout drinker. I mean, I, the fact that I'm, I'm still alive is, you know, is a miracle. And you know, I will I'll say that for years, you know, I, I was drinking, I was a f- fully functional alcoholic. Um, I was very, one of those ones that are very successful, but I, you know, I, I had issues, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I didn't deal with them. I didn't want to lose my clearance. You know, I didn't want to, you know, lose my job on the team. And, and then, you know, when, when stuff comes up and they're saying, well, Hey, you know, you're about to get in a lot of trouble. That's okay. Well, it's time to fix whatever my problems are, you know? And with me, what I did is I just, I wanted to figure out, you know, what was making me, you know, not being able to stop type of stuff. Um, because here, uh, I don't know. It's kind of, hard to say but it's i i knew i was drinking myself at that point and every you know that that thing that my my ex-wife always saying you know what you said last night or you know what you did last night you know that was hard dealing with because i didn't know yeah you know um but that's what i i i worked on was was basically myself it was one of those things that i wasn't going to tell anyone this is what i'm going to do i'm like i i just i did it and and because I had to show people by my actions, not by what I was saying, because people always um, like even with leaders, leaders can say all they want. But if they're not actually doing the same thing, then it, it doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things I stress when I when I talk to groups or I talk to people was, you know, it, people make mistakes. Leaders are not. I mean, I, a lot of times, you know, even when it comes to politicians or or people in general life, you know, they, they do something wrong and all of a sudden, oh, hey, this person is the worst person in the world. No, they, they made a mistake. Now, if they just continue to, to do the same thing or don't adjust or don't learn from it, well, that's a different situation. Right. You know, and I, and I, I strongly believe that, you know, some of my best soldiers were when they let felons into the, into the military and I had them in my infantry, you know, platoon, one of my best squad leaders, you know, had a felony record. A couple of my best soldiers had felonies. The thing, the difference was, is they'd already made a mistake and they learned from it and they were on their path of proving that they, they were a decent member of society, you know, and we used them, you know, we took them to combat. They went through it. They had, you know, PT, a lot of them got PTSD. They got, you know, shot. Many of them were killed. And then when uh, they decided to do the drawdown, that was the first people they kicked out, you know. So now they're going back, and they didn't go. They didn't leave with like a bunch of benefits. They got they got kicked out, mm-hmm. you know. So now um, you're uh, you're getting rid rid of like natural leaders um, and people that had actually paid their debt to society, and now 
and, and their country, basically, because they, they, they volunteered to go into combat and they, they're just throwing them, you know, to the wolves. I mean, they, some people didn't, you know, got a little bit of help, but a lot of them didn't. Yeah. It just makes me think a lot about judgment, you know, and, and how easy we judge other people based mm-hmm. on something, like you mentioned, something bad that happened in their life. You know, yeah. and I do, I do think it's important also to give people a chance and um, provide them with an opportunity to be better. Yeah. And, you know? and that's what a lot of people, I, um, right before I retired, uh, one of the reasons I retired, I mean, I, I was, I was at the fight house. I was an instructor. I was a combative instructor and a whole new chain of command came in to the unit that I, that I belonged to, but I was on, uh, I was on loan to a different, uh, to the, the main command and uh the army started going through everyone's work record and if you've been in any type of trouble you were basically looked at to be chaptered mm-hmm. so they look were looking at to chapter me however i was already past 20 years i'm already at retirement um they, no one knew me they were just and i was like well you know what kind of leadership is that you're, you're obvious and i had a a very thick stack of recommendations from my past commanders you know from before and after i got you know i went through my trouble and stuff like that and i just you know i, I wasn't really worried about it it was just it showed the it showed that that mentality of the people that had take that had gone and got into those leadership positions or people that had never been in trouble before and you can tell their mentality the way they treated people when they got in trouble um and one of them was you know he was the the senior enlisted advisor for the whole post you know he's a the command sergeant major, and he was just, he was recommending, you know, just, you know, booting out any NCO that, you know, got a DUI or something like that. And the way that he treated them and talked about them, and the view was like, hey, sergeant major, the only difference between you and that person is you made a left turn, and they made a right, and that's where the cops are. And sure enough, within a month when he had this big, you know, basically uh conference yelling at all of the of uh us non-commissioned officers and he got caught at the gate and was arrested for dui and was forced to retire so the person that was yelling the loudest and pointing the most at people was the very person that was doing the same thing yeah yeah that, that probably happens more often than than we think or admit to mm-hmm. you know i i um it's like you, we've all been in those situations. We've all made bad decisions and it's kind of whether or not you got caught. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm interested to hear from you about what your advice would be to a leader who has someone in front of them who's made a mistake and, um, you know, you want to trust them, you want to give them an opportunity, uh, but you're having a hard time with that part of, of helping them out. Um, what's your advice to somebody for giving someone else a second chance? Well, a lot of times you got to look at the the whole person. You got to, um, and, and ironically, even when I was going through my process of everything, and because uh, I had, I went to uh, intense outpatient uh, rehab for alcohol, um, and it just meant so they didn't fly me to a different island. I, I was basically in uh, rehabs just that every night I slept in my bed, you know, and going through that, it's. <sighs> It's you, you just got to know, kind of look at the situation, basically what, the way I'm saying it. Because as I was going through that, the, the commander started asking me, well, what do you think about this? Um, and 
if you look at the person, like what's the situation, what led to it, uh, does, does a person have anything inside them where they, they, they have like remorse or, you know, do they have a plan to do something? Is it a reoccurring thing? Uh, it, it's, it, if a leader just looks at what's it, what happened and nothing else, then there's a good chance he's going to lose a very good employee. Right. Um, because there's so many things out there. Like when it comes to military, a lot of people think when it comes to PTSD that we're just going to flip out or something like that. And it's not like that. There's, there's different levels of PTSD. Um, people react different. Um, and it, but almost all veterans are living with it. They're not suffering from it, you know, and that's a difference that you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, he has PTSD. I don't want him. He's going to flip out. No, you know, when, when people, have those reactions they're very they're very small numbers if you looked at the actual sheer numbers of people that you know have pts and you know pts some people say pts or ptsd it's, it's actually a very large number mm-hmm. um but the number of ones to get to that point where they do you know horrendous things like you know chris kyle you know the guy from the american sniper he was killed on a range by someone that had ptsd you know, there's that's a very small, minute amount of people, and something else led to that. And a lot of times, it, when when you get people, they get to that level. It's because they're they ask for help, they try to get help, and something happened. I'm I'm not excusing for what what he did because I don't know the whole situation in that. But you know, we have veterans that are committing suicide at VA hospitals. You know, um, but we're not all like that. You know, everyone just has, you know, it's it's just like a, uh, October 1st. There's a lot of people that, you know, have PTSD from that. Yeah. Um, and they need to talk to someone about it. And, yeah, and you're referring to the October 1st shooting that happened here in Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah. And, and one of the things I've been telling, even because one of the things that helps people with PTSD to do is to talk to people that have been through similar situations. Mm-hmm. So um, I always tell people, you know, we're the perfect people to, to be able to talk to them because we understand what they're talking about. We understand the, the snap, you know, when a bullet goes by your head or are seeing people fall, you know, on each side of you and, and to see, you know, the stuff that, that happens from mass shooting. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to talk to someone that's seen something like that mm-hmm. because they understand than going and talking to a counselor that, that's been to school. You know, um, when I went through my alcohol rehab, the, the question that they always kept asking all the, was a lot young, uh, a lot more younger Marines and stuff like that. But a lot, a lot of times you don't see people like me at, at my rank at the time. Um, in those, in those facilities. Um, but they kept on asking, you know, are you an alcoholic? Are you an addict? And they said no, and they automatically just would stop listening. You know, and that's that's one of the things that people don't think about is that when you when you have something uh, like October first, you, you find people that have been through something like that and get them to talk. Like uh, I run Twenty Two Warriors, you know, which is part of WSP Foundation, but I go to Merging Vets and Players uh, every Thursday two to four and I work out with other combat vets and former pro athletes. We work out for an hour and then we go upstairs and we sit in 
we call it like a fireside chat. We sit around in a circle and we talk. It's a support group. Yeah. And it's it's we're able to talk about things that we don't talk to other people. Yeah, I hear a lot because we we talked about you know um, giving people second chances and PTSD, twenty two warriors being in the military, and I just I hear a lot of um, really the need for empathy. You know, mm-hmm. to listen and to try and understand, and um, to not take things at face value. You know, as a leader, or um, you know, if you're wanting to help someone, someone else out, um, that's really important. And uh, you, you started to touch on Twenty Two Warriors. Um, when did you get involved with this organization? Well, it was December. I think it was on December 2015. I was at a a Christmas party at a, a Henderson Chamber uh, member, Dave uh, Beeson. And I was in a BNI group, Business Net- Network International, with with a group of them. And I, and I quit the group, you know, because I was starting to do something different. And I was at the Christmas party, and I was talking to a, a Rick Sismas, and he's, he was asking me, so, you know, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I just started my master's in organizational leadership, you know, Help them put you know businesses together. I was you know, my idea was you know help vets start businesses, whether it be for profit or non profit. And he's like, well, "That's you know kind of weird. I I swear you would have been already running, you know, or in a a veterans non profit group because the only time you ever showed any passion in the group or around us was when you talked about veterans. Because there was a few times I was trying to raise money for a couple of my friends that ran organizations, uh, mainly uh, my friend and runs an organization called H3 in Georgia that does service dogs. Mm-hmm. I, ironically, you know, they're the ones that train uh, Ranger. And, um, and he said, and he noticed that. And I kind of thought about that. And I was with my late wife and, and I kind of was talking to her on, you know, on the way home and I got with her and my nephew and, and I said, well, let's, let's start a nonprofit and came up with the name and got with, it was, you know, my nephew, Jeremiah and, and Carrie and then Dave Austin and and then I built you know a board around it and, and mainly the the first part of it was okay we'll we'll get you know grants we'll put together grants for service dogs because I was offered a letter so I could get a service dog from my psychologist but I said okay so where do I go how do right. I pay for it and we you know, I don't know I just I can write you a letter and their, their organizations are out there. So my plan was, okay, well, we'll raise money and then we'll find organizations to partner up with and we'll do that. And that's what we, we did is we, we started, uh, doing all the paperwork and most of it, you know, came out of my pocket. And, and then we, uh, partnered up with, uh, Stephanie Gherkin from Michael's Angel, Angel Paws. And she has a, you know, a great story. Well, not a great story, but a beautiful story about her, you know, her son, you know, that was very sick and, um, he had a service dog and that's how kind of that motivated her. So we partnered with her. So she has a list of veterans. And as we raise a certain amount of money, we contact her and say, okay, well, we got enough. We'll write you a check. We write her a check for, for a service dog. And then it, she trains them from 18 to 24 months together. Um, and so that's how it started. Okay. It was just that. And how did you come up with the name 22 Warriors? That it, it was 22. I was, I was just talking to somebody one day, um, on the phone. And then I was, I was looking at Facebook and they're, you know, they're 
the 22 started coming up. So then I started researching what, what it meant. And it comes from a survey they had in 2011. Um, and what the survey said in, in 2011, that 22 veterans daily commit suicide. Um, but I, you know, so I write off the okay, we'll, we'll call it 20 Warriors Foundation. Um, I didn't go too much farther into the actual number or the survey, except for the fact that when you read it, you know, it, it, it was pretty disheartening mm-hmm. just reading about 22. And, uh, so we, we started, you know, moving into, we got our first like sponsor, which was Helix Electric every, Twice a year, they have a charity golf tournament, and we're one of the three organizations that they they don't donate to from there. Uh, the Henderson Chambers done a couple of golf tournaments for us because we're all private. It's almost all private uh, funding, and we started moving along. But unfortunately, that year in October, uh, my wife took her life, and uh, I, I had to deal. You know, I dealt with that for a while. Um, that's probably when, although we have people in the organization, I kind of shut down. For about a year, um, I'd come out for some events, you know, that people were, were offering to do events. Um, but if it wasn't for Dave Austin and, and, and a few other people, you know, the organization probably would have folded because I, I would only come out like, you know, if it was a golf tournament or something like that, or, and they'd ask me to come out, I, I pretty much shut myself off. Um, but then I, I met my now fiance. You know, she went through something similar with her her stepfather. It's kind of how we bonded. And as I I started coming out of my self isolation, um, I started talking to you know to other people. And uh, you got Dr. Don Pawson who does neurofeedback. You know, uh, he's finishing up a a neurofeedback uh, inpatient facility up in Mount Charleston, and he decided you know become part of us and then. Uh, Sher Peterson and Chris Edwards got approval from, you know, up north to bring the dental program down. And then we, we got VSP project that is silky marches, um, around the nation. Um, it's c- kind of funny. They wear the, the silky shorts and, um, and they do the ruck march. And at the end, they do a, um, an oath. Each veteran's paired with a, a dog tag that has a veteran's name on that committed suicide. And they take an oath to take steps daily. Um, and then American War Mothers, which is also uh, Cher Peterson, um, and that's more deals with the Gold Star, uh, Silver Star, and Blue Star Mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people know about the Gold Star, the mothers that lost their uh, a, a child, or families that lost a uh, a family member at war. Then uh, Blue Star, the ones that are deployed, and then a lot of people don't realize the Silver Star, the ones when veterans come back, but whether it's PTSD um, or injuries you know limbs are been shot um and she runs that that's kind of the the family outreach portion of of the foundation okay so So you're doing more than than just placing service dogs now we've expanded to the point where you know it's you got the two divisions because now it's a warrior suicide prevention foundation like if you were to go to secretary of state you'd have to look up warrior suicide prevention foundation mm-hmm. uh, or wsp foundation is how we call it for short and then underneath it the dba is um uh 20 warriors foundation because it's, it's now uh, nevada specific so if someone was to donate to us and they wanted to stay in nevada or las vegas it would be to 20 warriors or Adopt a Veteran Smile, which is also Nevada specific. And then we have uh, Brain Health Warriors, which is a neurofeedback VSP project out of Texas. 
Um, we have a uh, smoke on water barbecue, which um, that started off. We partnered with them because we put on this big, huge barbecue championship in Henderson in October. And originally was we were partnering with them to be the nonprofit because to be sanctioned, they had to partner with the nonprofit. But then he became part of the foundation. And what he's going to do is like have barbecue events for, you know, veterans and first responders, whether it's to teach them how to actually compete in these large or just have, you know, tailgate barbecues and stuff like that. It's kind of, it's a, it's a different way because everyone has a different thing when it comes to uh, dealing with stress or, or things like I do martial arts. Like I go to MVP, but I also do jujitsu. You know, I I go to redemption fight team. Um, I go there, you know, that's what helps me. And then there's equine therapy. You got horses for heroes and spirit therapy. She got forgotten, not gone with the, you know, incumbent bikes and, and everyone has uh, something different that they'll identify with. And so we have, you know, our, our little uh, group of, of things that people can identify with. And if they don't identify with it, we'll, we'll point them in the right direction. Okay. So who describe a typical person that comes to you for help? Um, Usually, well, lately we've been getting a lot because we started helping, because uh, like I'm an MBA, Nevada Veterans Advocate to the Nevada Department of Veteran Services. And a, a, a lot of times we're getting people coming in because uh, they need help on their claims. They don't know how to get their uh, their claims submitted or if they're even eligible. And so a lot of times they'll come in saying, hey, I, I need some help. And is this for um, for veterans? Yes. Okay. Um, and then besides that, we have, a. um, it could be, we're at a, like this weekend at the Patriots Fest and we'll have a veteran come, you know, come up and just start talking. He's like, yeah, I've been having a lot of, you know, problems. I haven't, you know, been, been to talk to anybody. I don't really know where to go and I'll, you know, give him our card. We always have our, our flyers that has a, a, a bunch of information on it, like who to contact. And I, 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 ref- I always refer them to the VA if they haven't been there. Um, you know, like I don't go to a VA psychologist. I, I go to, uh, um, the vet center, which is funded by the VA, but it's not the VA, uh, actual uh, psychologist. But the one, the very first thing is we get usually some people that they just need some help. They're kind of, Hey, I don't know where to go. Right. Point them in the right direction yeah. and get them some help. Yeah. yeah. We, we never try to do it ourselves because that's that's not what our you know our job is. Our job is hey, if we can help you, we'll help you. But usually, the very first thing we do is we refer them to the VA so that they can get in the system. Right. Um, but if it's something like right directly right then, you know, if we can help, we help. If it's something like hey, I'm in the system, but you know, I need something to get aggression out. Well, hey, I, I go to MVP on. Tuesdays and Thursdays at, you know, Randy Couture's gym. You know, he's a veteran. He, he, he gives that his gym up and his instructors up for, you know, two hours every, every Thursday. Hey, that's where I go. So mm-hmm. why don't you, you know, why don't you come with me there? Um, and then, you know, there, there's a program that I'm getting ready to start up that I'm trying to get a couple partners on that, um, it's a martial arts program, but you're actually going to join one of the gyms. You know, I got the gyms lined up and all that, but the whole idea is if jujitsu, which helps me, um, uh, helps you get you know aggression out and get your mind straight. You actually join a gym, but you have to like commit. 
to actually showing up a minimum of three times a week and then showing up for the open mats, you know, a couple of times a month because it'd be at a different gym. And that's just bringing them um, into that group. Like MVP, it's a group of people. We're all friends now and we, we trust each other and we'll talk to each other. Um, programs like that, like the martial arts program, I kind of want to do the same thing, but it's a little bit different. It's a little more getting them every day to help themselves, not so much in the group setting, but their personal, you know, setting. But everyone, you know, like like I said, everybody's different. Yeah. And then you got, you know, Dr. Don with neurofeedback, which has a amazing uh, um, success rate. It, you know, the inpatient, I think it's like five to six times higher success rate than traditional inpatient. You know, it's and it's not, there's no medication in it. You know, it's it's doing neurofeedback. It's helping remap your brain. And then and PTSD has a very, you know, mid-90s success rate, which is huge when, when you're not using drugs. And that's one of the biggest issues with veterans um, and, and even first responders. You know, the, a lot of people don't realize that first responders, that, that they have issues with, you know, being given drugs and stuff like that, too, to help them cope with stuff. Um, so when you got something like neurofeedback, it, it's, it, it helps out a lot yeah. because it takes that out of there. And then yeah. even the dental program, you know, people are like, well, what does dental have to do with suicide prevention? Well, there's people that don't want to go to job interviews because their teeth are really bad. You know, so if you can do something simple as getting their, te- their teeth fixed, they go to a job interview, they're more confident, they get hired, when well, now they're supporting their family. They weren't given a handout. They were just helped to get to a point where they, you know, they actually feel good about themselves. And that's another thing about leadership is being able to help someone just enough or point in the right direction just enough to where they help themselves or they do the job themselves without you doing it for them. Mm-hmm. Me just writing someone a check from our organization to pay someone's rent doesn't mean anything if they don't, they're not trying to get a job or they're not following up on anything else. It's, it doesn't do anything. It's putting, you know, a, a bandaid on a, a gashing wound. You know, it's, it, it doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things we focus on is trying to focus more on helping them move themselves along than us actually doing it for them. Right. Yeah, so, that's fantastic. Tell me about the number 22. Well, 22, 2011, the VA did a, a survey. And what the survey said was 22 veterans daily committed suicide. They now say it's 20. Um, however, the problem with that number is it was only done in 21 states. California was not one of those states that they counted. We both know 21, uh, California is one of the most populated states in the, you know, in our country. And it also has one of the highest veteran populations. So if you, if you're not even counting that one of our largest, our most highly populated states of veterans, the number can't be really accurate. And it doesn't include drug and alcohol deaths. It doesn't include, uh, deaths, um, suicides by less honorably discharged veterans because they're not in the VA system. And it doesn't include our older veterans, like older than Vietnam. Vietnam and older. Mm-hmm. So if you really look at it, um, the number's higher because predominantly the ones that are doing most of the suicides are actually our older veterans. Yeah. You know, and a lot of it has to do with, with the way they were brought home, whether it be from Vietnam or the other ones that are just older and they don't have the, really the support network. 
um, that's starting to build now. And the support network isn't, you know, the VA can only do so much um, because it's, it's, it's bureaucratic. But, you know, you get or you're getting communities where they're starting to get, you know, organizations to team up with other organizations and they become more of these big, huge support networks. Um, it's kind of hard to do. Um, uh, one of my, uh, buddies was pointing out this weekend that the LB, LBGQT, um, community here has a fantastic, uh, um, facility, um, and, or, uh, community organization. Like if you go into there and you need to know where to go, if, if you need help on something, they can point to you exactly where to go and everyone knows to go there, right? We don't have that. We're trying to build it, but the, the problem with, you know, it seems to be with the veteran communities. A lot of times it, there's egos getting there. Like I have no problem if they develop uh, a center like that, uh, I'll be a part of it. I don't have to lead it. Uh, we can take our organization. We can take up our little space and just become part of a network because also one of the best, you know, the most important things about being a leader is also being able to be a follower and, and be part of something without trying to, you know, let your ego get in there. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest issues is that our community knows there's an issue. You know, and uh, you got egos that are standing in the way. However, you got, you know, the I forgot the name of the center, um, but it's this it the way that they're structured and the way they they're able to to help each other is the way we should be. You know, and, and it's it's kind of amazing. Like they've even reached out because in uh, I think I want to say in July. Um, a gentleman from from the that from the community. I, I don't. I'll keep on messing up that, but the LBGQT um, community. He's a retired master sergeant. He reached out to us because he knows within our ranks that we have, you know, you know, bisexual, lesbian, you know, homosexual veterans that are hurting. That not all of them know where to go within our community. They know where to go within theirs, but not within ours. Mm-hmm. And and so they're doing a fundraiser for us because they know that we don't care who it is that comes to us because we help people with bad paper. We help people. It doesn't matter if they're straight, gay. It doesn't matter if they're black, white. It doesn't, to me, it, it's, they're veterans, you know, and I, if we could get people to think about things that way and just think about, hey, you know, I'm a little bit luckier, luckier than a lot of people because I'm retired but I, and I also have my disability rating. So, I'm not rich, but I don't have to make an income. So I don't make an income. It's, you know, even though I run the foundation and everything, I, you know, I don't get paid. It's all volunteer. And even when we start bringing in the grants, I'll probably be the last person that, and within the organization that will get a, a salary because there's a, there are people within our organization that they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. But however, they're also, you know, need to pay bills and stuff like that. Yeah. But it, um, but that's just one of the things is, is actually it would be great to be able to get the community to get the actual the leaders from the different organizations to to be able to gel and and to be a resource for everyone that needs it. Yeah, I hear, I, that's not the first time I've heard that on this podcast about, you know, there are so many organizations out there that are doing fantastic things. They're give you know, they're helping the community. Um, 
but you know, how can we work together rather than be siloed, you know? And I think people come to the table, they have a lot of great ideas and they want to just hop in and do something. But if we did take a second to sit back and look at the big picture and see what else is already out there and see maybe what we could do to help and where the gaps can be filled might be a little more beneficial. Yeah. You know, I'm no expert in all of this, but it is interesting that you bring that up. Well, and a lot of times what the person that has the money might not be the person would be the best person to run the organization. Yeah. Um, but he might be, or she might be. Um, the person that has the idea and has the, the, the backing uh, might be better as a person as part of a board instead of running the board. And I think the one of the things that's really uh, kind of standing in the way is um, are the people that are in that position as far as where they have the funding or they have access to it, would they be willing to take a a co-role instead of the major role. Um, like with me, I had, like I, I've told, you know, they, they had a veterans, the na- veterans, na- the natural veterans symposium. And I went to it and if they have a great idea having a, you know, a central uh, resource center and different organizations in there, I would have no problem. Our, our, well, we as an organization would have no problem going on there and being part of that, being one of just a voice on a board not running it. I have no problem. You know, I'd rather just, you know, instead of being the chairman for our board, just be running the foundation or one of the programs and having other people do that. Because the more different things you have to do, the less you're focusing. Um, the only thing that you don't run, want to run into is where you have, you know, like Wounded Warriors Project. Great idea. It was, you know, the gentleman that started it, you know, and it still is a great organization. They had a period that, well, basically what they were, you know, using for uh, helping others and what they're using on their operating fund was huge. You know, like I don't disagree with if you're running an organization that's bringing in $321 million a year and your pay is $350,000 a year as a CEO, I agree with it. You deserve it. You, the, the idea that a nonprofit, sh- people shouldn't be paid, is ridiculous. What they shouldn't be making is like a profit or, you know, buying Lamborghinis off it or, you know, and, and where the problem came and where a lot of people became vocal about it was, wasn't his pay, it was his expenses. His expenses were in the millions. That's where he was getting by with stuff. Um, if you can, but, but since then, they, they, they refocused, they brought veterans back onto the board, they, you know, and, and they're trying to um, get back to where they, where they were when they started. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know, when, when uh, veteran organizations are basically any organization, but we're focused on veterans and first responders. So we do need to bring in business, you know, you know successful business uh, individuals into the into an organization that we want to grow. Um, would it be preferable that they had a veteran um, background or first responder background? Yes. Why? Because they would think a, l- a little bit more, how is this going to affect the veterans, not the bottom line? Right. Because that's what happened over over here. It, by now, they've fixed it, you know, but it's going to take a while for them to earn their, you know, trust back of people. Um, but then again, if you kept it all just veterans and, you know, family members and first responders 
and none of them have a business background, well, then you're missing out on stuff. Like, you know, as we're growing, you know, we, we have a couple of uh, people that are, you know, been around business for a while, but we're looking at bringing in people with more experience as far as marketing and, and some other stuff. Why? Because it's just smart. Mm-hmm. But we also put in our bylaws that 75% of our our uh, board and executive staff, has they have to be either veterans, first responders, or related to them. And the reason is we want to keep the focus there, not on the business, because uh, a lot of times, you know, when you start getting really large and millions of dollars are coming in, like which happened with them, um, and they started pulling out veterans and putting in businessmen, well, then you have a whole board with no, no veterans on it. Well, it's kind of hard to focus or know, you know, how something's going to affect a veteran if there's no veterans there. Yeah. It, you know, it's um, because we a lot of times we think different, but we think different most of the time in a better way because we think, okay, how is this going to affect us as a group, you know, as a whole, you know, in the community too. Yeah, and it comes down to, you know, who are you, who are you here to help? Yeah. yeah, that's that's the main focus. So it makes sense to me why you'd have you know majority of the people on your board who really can understand and stand behind that cause, and then you have the mixture of people who, you know, are a little more business savvy. Yeah. Really, totally makes sense. And then also people local that you know, like the, the socialites or people that know the like, especially someplace like Las Vegas where you need to know you, you need to know people, you know, to be able to to get into the where the money is flowing, mm-hmm. you know, because you know, if you get into there, you know, they're more than willing to to help organizations that they trust. And But you have to have someone they know to get that trust, you know, because there are so, I mean, there's, I think they estimated 5,000 um, nonprofits in, in Nevada, or Las, I think in my view, just Las Vegas. In, in Southern Nevada, yeah. I believe it, yeah. And, but there's only a handful that you can, you know, not a handful, but there's a, a the percentage is small of the ones you can trust. You actually have to look in, you know, to to what they're doing, look at their boards, you know. Like our numbers, like if you go to Secretary of State, our first year was only $23,000. You know, 6000 was the uh, a grant that went sp- straight to our, our office from USA through uh, through the Henderson Chamber. But... Uh, if you do this a little research, you can you can find out the ones that, especially the veteran organizations that are just trying to make money off the veteran name. Um, and then you have some that start that way, but then somewhere it changed. So if you do some some research, you'll find out that you know which organizations are really out there, and and a lot of the really good ones are the ones that are struggling, and they're struggling is because they're not wasting, and I wouldn't say wasting, but they're not spending money on some things that other ones are to get the exposure. Right. That marketing that you're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So tell me um, about Ranger and mm-hmm. the, the, um, the role that he plays in your life. I actually, uh, I got Ranger um, when I was going through my divorce. He was a rescue because uh, um, my, uh, or our dog, Abby was very protective and, so I had her go with my daughter and, and my ex-wife. And um, that's around the time that, you know, I was thinking about getting a, a service dog. So I, was, I started going to the, the clinic. And he's actually a, a rescue from Henderson, Henderson uh, Shelter. I got him when he was like about three and a half, four months old. 
And he's a German Shepherd. Yeah, he's a purebred Czech German Shepherd. Wow. Um, the Henderson uh, Shelter. I mean, I went there a few times. They're they're they have some just beautiful animals there. It's it's an affluent area, and it's a problem just like in a lot of affluent areas. People will buy these really exotic, you know, or or really beautiful animals and. They, they get them for a present or something like that. And, you know, like Easter is when we're times of year for, for rabbits because people give their kids rabbits. And you go there and, and some animals you see there, it's just like, wow, how is that? How is that here? You know, yeah. they, they had a savannah, one of the big cats. I almost got that, but oh no, this, the minute that thing <laughs> went up, it was gone. Yeah. Um, and, but I saw him and with, me, with my daughter. And so we took him and I, I didn't get him trained till last year. Um, but he's always, you know, he's always been with me, he's, you know, is a really, a kind of c- always kept me calm if I started getting upset. Um, I had him, uh, trained more. Uh, I don't like being in, in, uh, in places where a lot of people are at. Um, I tend to get agitated. I'll start grinding my teeth. Um, if, and I also got kind of a, a flash temper and what he'll do is if he notices that, that I'm starting to get upset, uh, he blocks me. And if he sees I'm getting like angry, he'll start pushing me backwards. And that's more so that I don't, if I, so I don't lose my temper and do something wrong. You know, um, I don't usually use my temper, but I got a pretty bad one when I do lose it. Um, he most, he calms me down. Um, you know, until recently it was hard for me to talk about, you know, about my wife um, and you know, there were a few times where I t- spoke in front of groups and he could tell that I was, I was getting upset. And if I'm sitting down, he'll, he'll jump up on me and start nudging me. Or if I'm standing up, he'll, he'll start, you know, nudging me or he'll get up on his hind legs and put his arms around me. And it's more to, that, to calm me down. Uh, he, he feels that I'm starting to get, to get upset. And sometimes I don't even realize it until he starts um, doing it, but he mostly, uh, his primary thing is when he sees me getting agitated, um, or really super anxious, he pushes me away from where this, he blocks a lot. He'll, he'll get right in between me and someone who kind of nudge me backwards. And it's, uh, you know, it helps me at times, um, <laughs> get home with, with the other dog, you know, between them two trying to get my attention and him trying to block me. <laughs> Then it gets a little bit different. Right. right. Then, then I'm like, then I'll like try to hide myself from him because he's trying to, they're like carp between him and the other, between the, we have a boxer that, you know, my, my uh, wife had left. She let one, she had a, a boxer and two cats and I still have them. And the boxer is super hyper. Uh, my kids call her uh, Miss Wigglebutt looks a lot. You know, <laughs> Sounds she, like a boxer. Yeah, yeah appropriate nickname for a boxer. And if I if I if I touch one of them, the other one just darts over, and then it's like carp. Yeah, trying to get get the food that you're feeding them, and then I start getting really agitated. Well, when he feels that, he tries to block, and so he starts crying up on me, and then well, the other one starts trying to do the same thing, and but uh, it's ironic that they get like that at home, and he's really hyper at home. He runs around. If his vest wasn't on, he'd be running around this place going nuts. But he knows that, you know, when he has his vest on, he stays by me. And, mm-hmm. you know, and um, so, it, I mean, he help, it does help. It, it, it There's times where, you know, I don't even realize 
you know, how upset I'm getting are, are, are sometimes like angry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, and yeah. he, he can detect it. Yeah. yeah. And he, um, and he just starts pushing me backwards, pushing me away. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or, but he's also very protective of me. If I, if he seems like I'm getting startled, then he, you know, that's, which is why I have my, uh, wear a D ring on him where I can put him on the shorter leash so that he doesn't dart towards someone. Um, but he's only done that once, but that was when I was in my backyard. Someone kind of startled me and like he almost knocked the gate off my, my house trying to get at him. Yeah. But, not, not bad to have a service dog who can also protect you for sure. Yeah. But he's a sweet dog. I had him, you know, he's also was trained that people can pet him. That's mm-hmm. why he doesn't have a do not pet, um, a little, uh, uh sticker on him or, a patch, right. um, and it's just because if I go to, like the, the hospital or something like that, um, over here, Ranger knows that we're talking Lots. about him. Um, but uh, it's a people can pet him because he, he makes people you know feel good. He'll you'll nudge them and let them you know, touch them. And like uh, this weekend at Patriots Fest, you know, he was with me, and all you know, kids really enjoyed being able to pet him and and stuff like that. Um, a couple of times, uh, he noticed I was getting kind of anxious because a lot of people come around. All he did was get in between me, kind of push me back, but then he let people pet him. Yeah. So it was, you know, it worked out well. I, it's a little bit, uh, a lot of people have their dogs where you, you don't, you know, touch them and stuff like that. But I'm around so many people that it, I, I had to find a way where he could actually, you know, be there for me, but also, you know, there's, it, it also helps other people being able to, to pet a dog because it's amazing how animals can, you know, make, make someone's day better. Yeah. You know, even at, even at the hospitals or at the, you know, the homes or the clinics, you know, walking around with them and someone gets to pet them that, you know, they're having a bad day and all of a sudden they've had something, you know, good happen. It's just like sitting down and talking to someone that's, you know, at a clinic, it's amazing how you can find out how bad of a day someone's having you know, when you go there and you sit down with them and you start talking to them or they get to, you know, pet him and next thing they're open up and they're talking. And, and it's another way of being able to help the community by just walking around with, you know, with, with a dog and allowing them to, to to be able to pet him. Something so simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Listen, Bill, thanks so much for coming in today and sharing your story. It's been a mm-hmm. pleasure. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for everything that you do for the community here. Well, that's not a problem. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Bill and the 22 Warriors Foundation, visit 22warriors.org. That's 22warriors.org. Thanks as always for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, visit the Leadership Looks Like Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Leadership Looks Like is a podcast dedicated to leaders everywhere. Our mission is to show that leaders come from all different backgrounds, ages, colors, shapes, and sizes. For more information about our project or to become a contributor, visit leadershiplookslike.org. Sign up for Fresh Start Mondays and get access to free leadership tips delivered to your inbox every Monday. To subscribe, visit leadershipexcursion.co forward slash subscribe.
And finally, The Coop, Las Vegas' newest co-working location with a focus on community and collaboration. If you're a small business owner looking for office space and amenities and would like to be located in Summerlin, visit thecoopcowork.com. Until next time, continue to inspire and support one another through effective leadership. I'm your host, Cree Edholm. See you again next week.